The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Multidisciplinary Guidance on Translating the Latest Therapeutic Advances into Patient Care for Early to Advanced Bladder Cancer, Clinical Consults, and Cases from the Community. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash VSV 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. We have an exciting program here today, an expert guidance on translating the latest therapeutic advances into patient care from the various stages of bladder cancer, early to advanced. Um, so, of course, you know, we have excellent panelists here on the stage with me, um, Matt Galski, uh, Janica Kurja, and I'll tell you a little bit more about them in a minute. So I'm going to start off um, a little bit with the introduction to the session, per se. I'm Ashish Kamath. I'm Professor of Religious Oncology at MD Anderson Cancer Center. And why are we here today, right? So the question is, why do we all gather here today? Well, there's several gaps in our knowledge and also gaps in our application of treatments for patients with bladder cancer. Um, only one-third of patients with non-muscular invasive bladder cancer actually in the United States get intravesical BCG. Part of it is due to the BCG shortage, but also part of it is because of lack of understanding of the appropriate patient that should be getting immunotherapy with BCG. So we're going to address some of the unmet needs in non-muscular invasive bladder cancer. Dr. Kriver is going to talk to you about innovative therapeutic solutions. Um, it's not that much better when it comes to muscle invasive bladder cancer. Um, close to half of the patients with muscle invasive bladder cancer don't get curative therapy. They're not offered radical cystectomy nor radiation therapy. And patients who really are undergoing radical cystectomy, half of those don't even get neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So really there's a lack of, of good quality care. And we need to reshape the treatment algorithms for our patients with muscle invasive bladder cancer. And of course, we'll hear about that from Dr. Galski. Um, and of course, there's been an explosion in immunotherapy and different regimens for bladder cancer. And the post-immunotherapy treatment landscape um, tends to be a little confusing when it comes to what agent, what sequencing, what do we use? Do we switch to another um, IO agent? Do we do uh, a completely um, targeted therapy? And of course, again, then we'll have a discussion and we'll hear more about that. Um, everyone knows this. I mean, this is the overview of the different disease states when it comes to bladder cancer. There are several things that we know, several things that we don't know, and we'll address that in today's session. And again, I just want to make another plug for Beacon. It's an excellent resource for everybody, not just patients. It is an excellent resource for healthcare uh, providers, physicians, their caregivers. And again, if any of you uh, haven't visited their website, I can't imagine anyone hasn't, but if you haven't, please do go uh, visit. You can download practice aids and a lot of brochures that are useful for patients in your clinic. So first off, we're going to talk about non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. I wanted to set the stage a little bit as to what is the unmet need that we have in bladder cancer. Now, one of the biggest things that has faced the or challenged us when it comes to management and understanding patients with non-muscular invasive bladder cancer is actually understanding what it means to have a so-called BCG failure. 
And for many years, the development of drugs and research in this field was stagnant simply because there were many different definitions. We had patients who got classified as being BCG refractory. They were classified as being BCG relapsing. Of course, intolerant was a little easy to understand. But the problem was when there were so many different definitions that were being thrown about, studies that were being designed, regulatory bodies didn't, didn't know what to do with it. So back in 2014, the AUA came together uh, with the FDA. The International Bladder Cancer Group came together with discussions with the FDA and proposed the BCG unresponsive definition, which was then adopted by the FDA in their guidance document that is now used as standard for industry to develop um, studies. So again, just to Sentinel Publications for reference, the FDA guidance document has that in there. So what is BCG unresponsive disease? Well, if a patient gets BCG and gets adequate BCG, so that's at least an induction course and one maintenance course, and for practical reasons, we do allow the patient for entry into clinical study to get five of the six and two of the three when it comes to the maintenance. If they get adequate BCG and then they meet the following criteria, he or she is classified as being BCG unresponsive. So with T1 high-grade disease, the first day evaluation, if the patient has persistent T1 high-grade disease or new-onset T1 high-grade disease, that does qualify as BCG unresponsive because that is extremely high risk for that patient. If the patient had CIS and the patient gets adequate BCG, is disease-free, and then recurs, that should be within 12 months of exposure to the last dose of BCG. So again, I got a lot of questions at the AUA here based on different podiums. It's not the start of the BCG, it's the end of the BCG. So it's the last exposure to BCG. And when it comes to recurrent papillary tumors, if it's high-grade TA or T1, that is within six months of that last exposure. Now, why is that timing important? Why is this six months, 12 months important? Why, why is this something that we recommended to the FDA? Um, follow me a little bit on this graphic here because this sort of tries to explain why that timing is important. So if you look at the, and I did this exercise with Don Lam's study from the year 2000, but you could do it from any real clinical trial. If you look, for example, at patients that have carcinoma in situ, in this study there were 278 patients that were randomized to BCG induction only or induction plus maintenance therapy. So after induction BCG, roughly 55, 60% of patients will have a CR with induction BCG. In the arm where you do nothing else, but you just give time for the immunotherapy to work and the TH1, TH2 balance to kind of come to where it's optimal, the CR will go up from 58 to 69%. In the maintenance arm, just by giving three more weeks of BCG, the CR goes from 55 to 84%. So 64% of so-called failures at three months can be salvaged just by giving them adequate BCG. And in the past, we had a lot of clinical trials that came in at this three-month mark, patient had CIS, they gave them drug X, and then got a 40% response rate and said, aha, this drug works, and, 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 and it's salvaged therapy. When just giving the patient appropriate standard of care BCG would have salvaged 64% of these patients. So that's why that timing is really important. Now, of course, BCG unresponsive is a, is a category of BCG failure, but the large group of patients, especially in North America because of the BCG shortage, are not able to get the full course or the adequate BCG that we call it. So uh, recently, the International Bladder Cancer Group again has come forward and, and recommended to the FDA that we have well-defined disease states 
And if a patient gets BCG and has recurrent disease but doesn't fall into that BCG unresponsive criteria, then the terminology that you should be looking for when you're looking at reports or clinical trials that are being reported out um, is BCG exposed because the patient has had BCG but has not had enough BCG to be BCG unresponsive. And for those trials, absolutely need a control arm because the control arm is more BCG, and as I showed you earlier, BCG itself can salvage about 65% of patients. So if you don't have a control arm, it's hard to know whether the therapy is making a difference or the BCG, which would have been standard of care, would have made enough of a difference. So let's now move on to a case as an example. So this is a classic bladder cancer case that we see in our clinics, a 60-year-old, a 65-year-old male with intermittent gross hematuria. Uh, appropriate imaging, as you can see there, upper tracts are normal. You can see a mass in the bladder, pretty decent-sized mass there. Um, the EOA, examiner anesthesia, which is important, didn't show anything palpable, so that kind of gives you a clue that it's non-muscle invasive, even though it kind of looks fleshy and like it might be. Uh, on resection, this was T1 high-grade, muscle was present, not involved. The patient appropriately underwent to repeat TRBT and had a discussion, cystectomy, BCG, elected to receive an induction course of BCG for six weeks. Now, standard of care. Unfortunately, at the three-month time point, this patient had that image. I don't know if you can see it, but there's a tumor there. This was resected and showed a TA high-grade lesion with concomitant CIS. So this patient fits the criteria for BCG unresponsive disease. And um, Dr. Kokreja, if you could tell us what are the options today for patients with BCG unresponsive disease? All right, thank you. Um, so BCG unresponsive disease, I think, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't discuss cystectomy um, just because it has such a high cure rate. And when you talk to patients, um, you know, what is the one treatment that could get me cancer-free and is most likely to have me cancer-free two years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, it's still going to be cystectomy. Now, I think it's a risk versus benefit discussion, and clearly not all patients are interested in that. So the rest of the slide is really dedicated to what are patients, um, you know, that are interested in bladder salvage therapy, what are their options? Um, so this is all rounded, not specific numbers, um, but just for ease. Um, so BCG reinduction. Um, you know, not not really great data for this patient, um, you know, 35% response rate, um, BCG plus interferon. Um, you know, this patient has CIS, and you see the little disclaimer over there to the side. Patients with CIS all over the board, all throughout this slide, everybody that has CIS, their response rates are worse than what's listed here. Um, for most patients, the ballpark rate is somewhere between 20 to 30%, and that's really the best that we see for most stuff. Um, Valrubicin, I don't, I have not personally treated a patient with that. Um, when you tell them 7% at two years, um, it's, the juice is not worth the squeeze for that. Um, pembrolizumab, um, new, new kid on the block here. Um, you know, it's, it's good for some patients, especially patients that are starting to have a lot of toxicity from local intervesical therapy treatments. They're not able to tolerate BCG reinduction. They're not able to tolerate any of the chemos that are listed below. Um, Pembrolizumab is definitely an option for them. Um, but again, you know, we'll, I'll talk about it in a little bit more. The CIS uh, response rate of 20% um, for uh, a younger patient can seem somewhat bleak. Um, and I've kind of divided this slide into FDA-approved and not FDA-approved. 
FDA approved. I mean, the chemotherapies, we're not going to be going to the FDA to, to have those approved. Um, I'm going to expand on mitomycin and gencitabine and docetaxel, um, probably the more promising therapies that we have. Um, and then for various reasons, uh, vicinium and natopharagene are not uh, available in the clinic right now. Um, so I think their stories are still uh, yet to be told, um, but they're both out there and they both do have uh, adequate response rates um, for stuff that we would definitely try to give patients if they become available. Um, so a little bit about intravascular chemotherapy. So um, gemcitabine with mitomycin, um, you know, the recurrence-free survival is very similar to gemcitabine docetaxel. And then much like the BCG, the maintenance matters. So if you look under there with maintenance for gemcitabine docetaxel, 81% uh, um, one-year recurrence-free survival for bladder cancer, that's really great. Um, and the same with uh, two years with maintenance, 59%. That's really great also. Um, but what are the downsides to the gemcitabine and docetaxel as an option? Um, so again, those patients with CIS are kind of outliers in their response rates. And I do think that there are plenty of urologists out there that have access to the gemcitabine docetaxel combination that are using this um, up front if they don't have any BCG available to patients. Um, I cannot underscore the importance of BCG availability and how that really impacts patients' decisions on how we manage their bladder cancer with them. Um, but again, for just high-grade disease, really great response rates. Um, so a little bit about Keynote uh, 057. Um, so this was a cohort of patients with were high-risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. There was two cohorts, um, one CIS and one without CIS. And they went on to get pembrolizumab, 200 milligrams every three weeks. This kind of been changed now. Patients that are doing well can go to every six weeks, so a little bit less burdensome. Um, and then if they did well, they didn't have a recurrence, they didn't progress, they went on for 24 months of treatment and then they came off treatment and continued usual surveillance. Um, primary endpoints for this study were complete response in uh, cohort A, so the with CIS. Um, and uh, this is the backbone of how the FDA approved this drug um, for patients with CIS. It was approved in January 2020, and I think really permeated urology quite a bit really quickly. Um, whether it was people really looking for stuff to treat uh, non-muscle invasive bladder cancer outside of the bladder or um, whether it was just time for a systemic therapy, I would say um, urologists and medical oncologists picked this up really quickly. Um, so what were the actual numbers here? Um, so four patients, 96 of the patients, uh, 39 achieved a complete response at the first disease assessment, which was at three months. Um, and then of the responders, uh, it seemed like patients that responded continued to respond um, for a fair amount of them, almost a third of them. Um, and then uh, just to mention, um, you know, the other side of the coin, I don't want to be all one-sided here, um, the SWOG S1605 trial did close early, um, and that was looking at atezolizumab um, with uh, a couple treatment-related fatalities. Um, things that have been mentioned here, uh, Dervalumab, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later. Um, one of my uh, co-fellows, Roger Lee, presented uh, this with Dervalumab monotherapy. Um, 
again, uh, I would say that a lot of us would think a complete response rate of 12% at six months is not hitting the mark quite yet. Um, but there is uh, some other data that was presented today at the SUO, the CG 0070 uh, trial with um, or without pembrolizumab, also another um, oncolytic virus technique that I think is going to be really exciting to see what happens in the future. Um, so other upcoming trials, um, so Dr. Kamat mentioned the BCG exposed, um, and what are those uh, patients? So this uh, keynote 676, uh, BCG um, induction therapy only, so no maintenance uh, whatsoever, um, and then randomizing them to a BCG reinduction or BCG reinduction with pembrolizumab um, with a primary endpoint in carcinoma in situ patients um, with a uh, complete response. And so I think you'll see as these trials are being designed um, with the FDA guidance, really the um, marker of response has been CIS. Do these patients respond to CIS? So some other slides, uh, other, other things on this slide. So um, other things that are being uh, tested in this same fashion, nivolumab and dervalumab. Um, the ADAPT trial, very interesting, dervalumab with radiation therapy. And then in the BCG-naive trial, I don't think we have enough trials in this area. Um, so this is the outline of the Potomac trial. Um, so BCG induction plus maintenance, BCG induction maintenance plus dervalumab, and then BCG induction only plus dervalumab. I think these are really interesting trials for a couple reasons. Um, so the first reason, the, the BCG um, continues to be on a shortage, and um, while we're going through this BCG shortage and we don't really have an end in sight right now, um, if we could only give patients induction and then we give them dervalumab, which we have plenty of, and that's just as good as BCG induction plus maintenance for 24 months, well, that makes a lot of sense, especially for patients that can get the dervalumab. Um, and then other similar trials in this area, uh, Alban looking at tezolizumab and Crest looking at sansalimumab. So what happens when you give um, people immunotherapy. And I think, you know, as urologists, we really um, have not, as a group, delved into this. But I think if we start seeing dervalumab um, and other agents coming up in early on phases of treatment, I do think you will see more urologists starting to administer um, these medications. And uh, there are definitely some large group practices out there that are doing it right now. Um, so what, what are the things we look for? What are the bad things that can happen, um, you know, the other side of the coin to immunotherapy? Um, so GI-related uh, side effects, uh, colitis, I think, is a really big one. Um, I think when uh, immunotherapy first started uh, being administered, that was something that kind of got missed a fair amount, and there was some treatment-related deaths too, but um, now we're very well aware of it, um, as we are hepatitis, um, pulmonary pneumonitis. Um, you can also get a fairly significant myocarditis when we're talking about the uh, cardiovascular system. Um, Derm stuff, you know, the rashes, those are real, um, but I think most patients, they're pretty easily treatable, usually don't cause treatment delays. Um, and then endocrine, thyroid uh, problems are very common, um, diabetes. Um, and then what do we do when we get these um, adverse events? So um, this is just a strategy recommended for managing immunotherapy adverse events. Um, grade one, just continue um, therapy. And I mean, there's a lot of grade ones. Most of them are, you know, rashes, um, you know, I feel tired, that type of stuff. Those are pretty easy. 
Um, the grade two stuff, uh, withhold, and then um, steroids if it doesn't resolve. And then three, four, much more serious, um, discontinuing immunotherapy, hospitalization for IV steroids, um, you know, tapering, all that stuff. And I think when we start talking about grade three, four toxicities, that's where urologists, I think, have some learning to do. Um, and if we're going to bring that into our practice, um, something that we really need to start to be comfortable with. So thank you so much, Janet. That was a, a really succinct, you know, summary of all the data that we have right now. There's a lot of work going on, and and even at the AUA here, a lot of great abstracts being presented. Um, a couple of questions that come in, and let me start by asking you this one. Um, the first is in your daily practice, and and what you're actually doing in in your day to day management of bladder cancer patients. How often do you go with cystectomy versus trying one of these? Be uh, bladder sparing options for a patient, you know, who's exactly um, like our case. Yeah, I mean, I think I present most patients with all options: um, BCG versus or cystectomy up front, um, and especially at recurrence. Um, talking more about cystectomy. Um, generally, my practice is I don't really let people go past like two therapies. So like if they do BCG, then gemcitabine does a taxol. If they don't respond to that, then usually it's probably time to say if you're healthy enough, um, cystectomy is the way to go. Um, but I don't think we know. And I think the interesting thing about pembrolizumab specifically um, is, and something that I talk to my medical oncologist about all the time, is it preventing progression of disease. So while CIS is still in the bladder, is it preventing that CIS from becoming muscle invasive and metastasizing? And I don't think we know the answer to any of that. Um, but in my day-to-day -day, day -day practice, I do offer cystectomy up front quite frequently. So speaking of medical oncologists, I don't think there's anyone that knows more about bladder cancer than the gentleman sitting to your left over there. Um, so Matt, let me ask you, um, and this is, let me paraphrase a question, but ask you as well. So in a patient that has BCG unresponsive disease and is being considered for immunotherapy, right? What do you tell the patients about the data with pembrolizumab and how it compares to what you know about IO agents in general in more advanced states? So I, I think that that last point is the key one. So, you know, it, it, I think there's a lot of um, sometimes surprise that the durable complete responses with Pembro and non-muscle invasive disease are what they are, but it, it completely lines up with what we see in advanced disease and muscle invasive disease too. The, you know, the confidence intervals are pretty wide around response rates that range from 20 to 40%. You see that across all disease states. So I think there's a subset of patients that benefit a lot from these drugs, um, and it's a matter of finding out who those are. Right. I think that's an important point because, you know, in academic centers such as ours, we collaborate really closely with our medical oncologists and, you know, we, we do it all together. But I know there are colleagues and, and friends that in the community that want to incorporate IO into their their practice, which is great. But the nurses, the residents, the fellows need to know that the adverse events are quite different and can be deadly. It's not just a walk in the park for these patients. Um, a question for you, Dr. Kokerja. Um, this is more of a how do you do it kind of thing. Do you always prefer to do a repeat resection before you start BCG, or will you wait for a patient after they get induction BCG and then do a resection for T1 high grade? Uh, for T1 high grade, I usually do it about somewhere two to three weeks after the initial resection, so I'm not delaying their start to BCG. So most of them will still start BCG within four to six weeks from their initial resection. Um, but I, I do do it before I start the BCG induction. 
That's generally what we have in the guidelines is to do a repeat resection for patients with T1 high-grade disease, especially if there's no muscle present in the specimen, because the risk of these patients actually having T2 disease that you then treat with BCG is fairly high. Um, one last question before we move on to the next thing. And Matt, maybe, maybe I could ask this to you, even though it's a urology question. The question is, if I, a urologist, am trying to start this in my urology clinic using pembrolizumab, how or what's the best way to go about training my staff? I, I think the, the key is to assume everything that a patient reports is a side effect of the drug until proven otherwise. Um, and I can't stress that enough because we tell our patients that. Um, and of course, they're going through a lot. They only uh, retain a little bit of what we say because they're thinking about their disease and what's going to happen to them. And, and, and so it, it's not unusual for someone to come in a month later and say, oh, yeah, I've been having diarrhea for three weeks, um, even though we drill that into them. So if that's happening on the patient side, then it's definitely going to happen on the, uh, on, on the side of the folks who are getting calls from patients um, and saying, oh, diarrhea, take some Imodium or something like that. So at just be vigilant that everything that a patient reports is related to drug until proven otherwise. It might not be, but assume it is. Right. Right. Good, good point there. Um, so this particular patient was counseled on, on cystectomy, counseled on different options, elected to undergo intravesical therapy with emcitabine and docetaxel. Um, this is a regimen that has sort of become the de facto standard for BCG unresponsive patients, at least in North America. Um, got induction six weeks and, and was NED at that first evaluation. And just based on data that, that keeps coming out mainly from Mike O'Donnell's group, but also multi-institutional uh, collaborative efforts, it appears that the maintenance therapy, which Dr. Krakaja mentioned, is extremely important. So this patient is currently on monthly maintenance and has hit the two-year mark and is NED. Um, so now we're going to talk about reshaping treatment algorithms for muscle-invasive bladder cancer, how to integrate what we know about multidisciplinary um, uh, approaches and novel therapeutic uh, regimens into our clinic. So for this, again, setting up the example uh, with a case is always helpful. This is, again, a 64-year-old male with good performance status, ECOG-0, recently diagnosed with muscle-invasive bladder cancer, T2. Examiner anesthesia clinical stage was done. It's not T3. It's not T4. It's, it's T2. GFR is 54. Uh, patient has hypertension, normal um, cardiac function, and is on the biopsy sent by the urologist noted to have a PDL one high um, status. Now, this patient is very interested in just getting the cancer out and wants to schedule a radical cystectomy ASAP, not interested in hearing about trimodal therapy or any such thing. Uh, for this type of patient, Matt, if you could lead us through what are the cystectomy therapy options for our patients. Sure thing. Um, so good evening, everyone. So we know that systemic treatment for muscle invasive bladder cancer does improve outcomes. We have two large randomized phase three studies that establish neoadjuvant cisplatin-based chemotherapy uh, as beneficial in this disease state. And it's really been some time, actually, since we've had medical advances for the treatment of muscle invasive bladder cancer since these trials were published. We're talking about we're talking about decades. Um, and so this is really an exciting time in muscle invasive bladder cancer the past few years where there's a number of new drugs entering the, uh, um, the clinical trial landscape here. Um, the SWAG study results are shown here. We talk about a modest improvement in outcomes sometimes uh, related to neoadjuvant plan based chemotherapy, but it's a 2.6-year median 
overall survival benefit in, in to, to patients who benefit from this treatment that's that's not insignificant at all. So this is a standard treatment. It's underutilized. And we're going to talk about some new things in muscle invasive disease, but but really the, the first priority is that patients are receiving guideline-directed therapy with treatments that we know can be beneficial. Um, but you can see here, even with neoadjuvant cisplatin-based chemotherapy and radical cystectomy, far too many of our patients are developing lethal metastatic recurrence. We need to do better than this, and we need to do integrate new therapies into this disease state. Um, in a logical place or a logical group of therapies to integrate into muscle invasive bladder cancer are, of course, immune checkpoint inhibitors. We've been talking about this. Uh, those were really the first drugs in the current generation of drugs that have been introduced into advanced bladder cancer. Uh, that showed benefit, and uh, that's the paradigm in oncology. We show drugs are safe and active in metastatic disease, and then we move them earlier where they might have an even bigger clinical impact. So there's been a number of studies looking at single-agent or immune checkpoint blockade doublets in the neoadjuvant setting. And of course, the benefit of the neoadjuvant setting for drug development in muscle-invasive bladder cancer compared to metastatic disease is that we could do single-arm studies. You can't historically do single-arm studies in the adjuvant setting. That might be changing. But historically, you couldn't do that because you would give a drug to someone in the adjuvant setting and their cancer wouldn't come back and you wouldn't know if the drug worked or they didn't have micrometastatic disease in the first place. But in the neoadjuvant setting, there is an intermediate endpoint. You could measure whether or not that tumor is eradicated when patients are taken to surgery. And we know that that correlates with long-term outcomes on an, uh, on an independent patient level. We don't know if it's a trial-level surrogate, but we know that it's an independent-level surrogate or a patient-level surrogate for improved outcomes. So when we see that, of course, it, it's, it's good for patients. So a number of studies looking at single-agent or immune checkpoint blockade doublets, you could see many of them listed here. They range in size. They range in whether or not they enrolled only patients who are quote-unquote cisplatin ineligible, or they enrolled all comers with muscle-invasive bladder cancer. But the take-home here is the pathologic complete response rate. And you can see PATH-CRs with single-agent or doublet immune checkpoint blockade in the neoadjuvant setting that really are pretty similar to what we expect with cisplatin-based chemotherapy. So this has led to a lot of enthusiasm for moving immune checkpoint blockade into the neoadjuvant setting. There were studies that were done in single-arm phase two studies in patients who are cisplatin eligible as well. And of course, in this setting, most of the time, the studies seek to build upon the standard treatment. So cisplatin-based chemotherapy plus immune checkpoint blockade. And of course, these studies are um, moderate in size, single-arm. Um, but I think what we're seeing here is fairly similar to what we were seeing in metastatic disease when you combine chemotherapy and immune checkpoint blockade and neurothelial cancer, which is that you're probably seeing a little bit of improvement in outcomes. Uh, but if you compare the PATH-CR rates on, the, on this slide compared to the last one, it, it's probably modest. Um, and in, we, we see pretty good PATH-CR rates, at least in phase two studies with immune checkpoint blockade alone. So 
all of these strategies are moving to the phase three setting, and, and there's really independent studies being run for patients who are cisplatin eligible, uh, building on cisplatin-based chemotherapy, adding immune checkpoint blockade, and then cisplatin ineligible patients with uh, single-agent immune checkpoint blockade or non-platinum doublets. Interestingly, all of these studies include giving neoadjuvant treatment, and then for a period of time, adjuvant immune checkpoint blockade as well. We're going to talk about that a little bit more later. The new kid on the block in, in the metastatic setting uh, are uh, antibody drug conjugates. And in Fortimab, Vidotin is an antibody drug conjugate I'll talk about a little bit more later. Um, but I have this slide here because we actually have the first study results of a single agent antibody drug conjugate given in the neoadjuvant setting for cisplatin ineligible patients. Small sample size, but this was presented at ASCO GU. And you can see giving this single agent in a cohort of patients who historically would go straight to surgery uh, resulted in a PATH CR rate of 36%. Um, so this is promising data. There's combination studies with this drug in the neoadjuvant setting uh, in, the, in, in the phase three setting right now. Dr. Kamat. So uh, thanks a lot, Matt, for putting that into perspective. Now, you know, one of the things uh, I wanted to ask you to share with our audience here is when you look at PATH CR rates for patients that are undergoing neoadjuvant therapy, chemotherapy, but also investigational agents, and then we have that data at the time of cystectomy, uh, what's your sense as to how valid that is as a regulatory endpoint? Uh, so, um, of course, there are a few limitations, as, as everyone in the room knows. One limitation is that in this disease, as opposed to others like breast cancer or lung cancer, in this disease, we know that the surgical treatment, the biopsy, results in PATH-CR by itself. So there is a baseline PATH-CR rate in this disease that you don't see in other solid tumors. Um, and so that's one consideration, particularly in the context of single-arm studies, because you don't know exactly what the novel therapy is contributing. Those PATH-CR rates are above what we would expect with, uh, with TUR alone, but there's always that background to consider. The second point is this issue that can sometimes be confusing of a patient-level surrogate versus a trial-level surrogate. And a patient-level surrogate means that if the patient in front of you has a PATH-CR, then they're going to have a good outcome. A trial-level surrogate is a treatment regimen that results in a higher PATH-CR rate uh, compared to a different treatment regimen, leads to improved survival in that group of patients. And, you know, it's sort of hard to wrap your head around those differences conceptually, but a trial-level surrogate and a patient-level surrogate aren't the same thing. And right now, we don't totally know if PATH-CR is a trial-level surrogate, which would be a regulatory endpoint. Right, absolutely. Um, so this particular patient was scheduled for radical cystectomy in Dr. Kukrej's office, uh, listens to a podcast, and then calls her and says, I want to cancel surgery, and I want to explore a bladder-sparing option. So Janet, what would you tell this patient? All right. So um, options for bladder sparing therapy, and I, I'm just going to say this right off the bat. So um, for patients that don't want cystectomy or cannot have cystectomy, um, chemo radiation is the standard of care. And what does that mean? So it means radiation alone is not the standard of care and chemotherapy alone is not the standard of care. It's the two of those together. Not that chemo radiation is the standard of care for all bladder cancers. No, it's the combination together or what should be used in patients not getting cystectomy. Um, 
And this is based on a phase three trial, um, muscle invasive bladder cancer. Um, and they looked at, and you can actually see over here on the um, right-hand side of the slide that the radiotherapy is in the red line and the chemotherapy is in the blue line. Both of them um, have inferior uh, overall survival and disease-free survival uh, at, uh, at 72 months. So what are some disadvantages? Um, so some patients cannot receive chemotherapy, and I'm not, I don't want to talk out of turn or talk out of school here with Dr. Galski next to me, but I would say that often there are options for patients um, for chemosensitizers. Maybe they're not getting full cisplatin-based chemotherapy, um, but, you know, there's a, many different ways, gemcitabine, um, 5-FU, mitomycin, um, all sorts of things that can be used as chemosensitizers. And so I would say if a patient cannot get a chemosensitizer, I really think that evaluating just getting radiation alone for anything other than symptoms um, is, is something that maybe a, a palliative care consult or something like that should be considered. Um, and I think radiation for symptoms is a totally different beast than chemoradiation for when we're looking at disease-free survival and overall survival. Um, so here's some clinical trials in this space. Um, so this is a phase two, um, Pembro plus gemcitabine and the concurrent hypofractionated uh, radiation. Um, so this does not have any node-positive patients, but uh, muscle-invasive bladder cancer, patients that are cystectomy ineligible or they want bladder preservation, they can't have had any previous chemo, and they got pembrolizumab um, prior to maximal TRBT. Um, some of the studies are being designed this way so that the um, immunotherapy is given while there's some primary tumor probably still in place. Um, patient goes on to get maximal TRBT, they get radiation, they get gemcitabine, and then they get pembrolizumab. And then 12 weeks, they get uh, post-radiation therapy uh, TURBT. Um, and anybody that has seen these post-radiation blotters knows that a TURBT is really what you need to know if there's disease there. Most of the time, you cannot tell um, just looking at it uh, whether there is still tumor there. So the follow-up to this, um, so at a median follow-up of uh, almost 15 months, uh, the patients with uh, bladder intact, disease-free survival was 88%, um, some uh, immune-related toxicities. Uh, and then you can see over here on the right-hand side the um, probability of recurrence or death, so either event makes a, a tick down in that. So really, um, you know, Pretty, pretty good, drops below um, 80%, um, but still very good when we're talking about bladder preservation. Some other uh, randomized trials that are still going on, um, uh, Keynote 992, uh, S1806, and Inspire uh, all kind of use um, some variations of this almost uh, very, very similar uh, trial design. So very exciting things to come for patients that are uh, preferring bladder preservation. Um, so this is uh, Derva Tremi with concurrent radiation. Um, so this is looking at uh, patients that are getting uh, TUR, Dervatremi, um, and then they uh, go on to get radiation, and then again a TUR for response. Um, this is an uh, abstract that was presented at ASCO um, last year. And what they found was, uh, again, very similar that around 80% um, of patients had a, a response. 
Um, and the uh, bladder intact, similar, uh, 73%. Um, interestingly, um, kind of what we talked about a little bit earlier, uh, there was a 31% of the grade three, four events. Um, so those can be very significant when you're um, trying to complete a, a one-year or even two-year course. Um, and it's uh, something that we're really interested in, in pursuing. Uh, the, we really have to take everything seriously, as Dr. Galski said. Um, so this is a novel approach to um, both non-muscle and muscle invasive bladder cancer, um, but this is a particular clinical trial looking at uh, patients with muscle invasive bladder cancer. It's with uh, something called TAR-200, and if you haven't heard of it, it's essentially uh, a thing that you put in the bladder and then it coils up like a pretzel and then it has a sustained release of gemcitabine. Now the um, matrix can be impregnated with all sorts of stuff, but this particular trial was looking at gemcitabine. Um, and this was really a, a phase one safety trial. Um, and it, you know, again, with the, the pathologic downstaging and the pathologic complete responses, partial responses kind of take with a grain of salt because, again, we know that um, TRBT definitely contributes a fair amount. Um, but actually a, a pretty exciting um, method of drug delivery. Um, and here are the results from that. Um, so it was pretty well tolerated. The um, main side effects, as you would expect, were lower urinary tract symptoms. Um, and then if you look to the right, just a, a ton of combination uh, trials over here on the side, um, looking at a newer agent, uh, citrolimab, um, with the TAR-200, um, and then uh, one uh, with the um, TAR-200 versus uh, concurrent chemoradiation. So uh, a complicated trial scheme, honestly, um, but Sunrise, I think, is uh, a really interesting uh, way to incorporate the TAR-200. Um, so then uh, this last slide here, uh, also an abstract presented at ASCO. Um, this is uh, looking at patients um, with TRBT and chemoimmunotherapy alone for muscle invasive bladder cancer, so patients not getting radiation therapy. Um, and so we've heard a lot about these trials. Um, you know, patients, if they have a complete response to chemotherapy, if they have a complete response to um, some of these uh, triplet, doublet therapies, so um, this particular trial, gemcitabine plus cisplatin uh, plus nivolumab, um, preserving the bladder um, and not doing radiation and not doing cystectomy. Uh, so you can see um, actually a, a fairly 50-50 split for patients that did respond. So 30 of the patients had a clinical complete response and um, then 33 had uh, not a clinical complete response. And then I think the really interesting thing to me is patients that had a clinical complete response, if you look at the um, swimmer plat over here on the right, you'll see that all the patients in blue had local work occurrences. Um, and I don't know if you can pull it out there, um, but there's green dots on those two. Um, so there were still plenty of patients that underwent cystectomy. Um, and I think the, the trial data on this, um, as far as uh, metastasis-free survival and stuff like that is still pending. Um, the overall idea, though, is that you can pick patients that are going to be complete responders to whatever it is 
um, and then you can preserve their bladder and then follow them safely. Uh, so I think overall, a uh, complete response rate of 50% is awesome, and 50% of those patients got to uh, keep their bladder. And, um, you know, if we can predict those patients ahead of time and do it safely, you know, I think this will quickly become a standard of care and redesign the muscle invasive bladder cancer pathway completely. Let me ask a question um, to you, Matt. Um, looking at the DDR mutations and their ability to sort of help us guide who is or not going to respond to cytotoxic therapy, um, where are we today? Uh, so the data has been pretty mixed. Um, lots of data suggesting that certain uh, DNA damage response gene alterations predict sensitivity to cisplatin-based chemotherapy mechanistically. That makes sense. Um, the problem is that there are a bunch of genes that are called DNA damage response genes. Some of those mutations have been characterized. Some of those mutations have been made, introduced into cell lines, uh, where mechanistically they've been proven to be sensitive to platinums. In others, we just see on a um, genomic sequencing report, and, and we say, hey, that looks like it's probably going to be a um, pathogenic alteration. So I think the problem is that it's completely across the board. The best data is for ERCC2, but even that hasn't been totally consistent. So not ready for prime time. Yeah, no, good point there. Um, and, you know, we've had trimodal therapy as an option for patients for decades now, right? It, it just hasn't caught on, at least in North America, with any sort of reliability. It's, it's used more uh, in the UK, for example, also in maybe a few cities in, in the United States. I think with the advent of the IO-based TMT trials, there's a resurgence in interest in bladder sparing approaches, which I think is great for our patients because there certainly is a role to play. Um, but a word of caution, you know, when we look at clinical response rates prior to cystectomy or after chemotherapy with cystoscopy and biopsy, we as an urologist are wrong more than half the time, right? Because on cystectomy, you will find residual disease in the bladder, even if your cystoscopy and biopsies suggest that there's no evidence of disease. So it's one of those things that we have to watch really carefully as we're moving forward. So now this patient uh, undergoes radical cystectomy, um, gets chemotherapy, undergoes radical cystectomy, and has T3B disease. Again, you know, classic uh, type of presentation. Uh, the chemotherapy is four cycles for this 46-year-old lady who had uh, muscle invasive bladder cancer, four cycles of gemsis, undergoes radical cystectomy, elects to have a neobladder, and the pathology comes up as T3B. The nodes are all negative, 38 were sampled, and, and they were all negative. So for this patient, where are we today? You know, we've talked, we've heard about adjuvant therapy for many years. It's been discounted when it comes to adjuvant chemotherapy. Um, where are we today, Matt? And um, if you could also talk to us, where would we be today in the clinic if this patient had, frankly, node-positive disease? So this is where some of the most exciting data has been in the past year in, in uh, muscle invasive and advanced bladder cancer, and that is related to trials that have integrated immune checkpoint blockade in the adjuvant setting. So we have three trials that were designed pretty similarly with a few nuances. Uh, patients were enrolled, so we talk about these as adjuvant uh, MIBC trials, but they're actually different than the adjuvant trials that were designed previously. They're actually different patient populations, so we shouldn't think about comparing these to those trials of the past few decades with uh, adjuvant platinum-based chemotherapy. The reason that they're different is that these trials enrolled patients who had neoadjuvant chemotherapy and had residual disease, or patients who didn't have neoadjuvant chemotherapy, had high-risk features, but were cisplatin ineligible. So two major unmet need populations. The endpoints 
Most of these studies were disease-free survival, except for Ambassador, which is the one study that hasn't read out yet, has a co-primary endpoint of overall survival. Um, so this is Invigor 10. This study compared adjuvant atezolizumab, a PD-L1 inhibitor, with observation in that patient population that I just mentioned. And unfortunately, this study didn't meet its primary endpoint. Um, this data set, though, has really been um, important in terms of us thinking about the future. And it's been important because what the investigators did on this study was they had this pre-planned, but it was a retrospective analysis. They took uh, specimens, plasma, from patients on cycle one, day one of treatment, and they looked for circulating tumor DNA. And if circulating tumor DNA was present, they asked the question, would that have made a difference in this study if we selected patients who were at highest risk for micrometastatic disease? And that analysis indeed showed if you reanalyzed the study and limited the analysis to patients with circulating tumor DNA that was detectable on cycle one, day one, it actually did show a benefit with adjuvant atezolizumab. It's exploratory but it's certainly important in terms of how we think about designing studies for the future. On the flip side, uh, the Checkmate 274 study has been practice changing. In this study, randomized patients between nivolumab and placebo, so not observation, but placebo. Um, the primary endpoint was disease-free survival in the intent-to-treat population, so in all comers. And then there was a co-primary endpoint of disease-free survival in patients with high pdl one expression in their tumor. You can see both analyses here. Um, in the intent-to-treat population, nivolumab was associated with an improvement in disease-free survival with a hazard ratio of 0.7. And these data are actually updated at this meeting. So a minimum follow-up of 11 months. And you can see in the patients with tumor pd one expression uh, greater than or equal to 1%, a hazard ratio of 0.53 in favor of adjuvant nivolumab. Um, importantly, the safety of nivolumab in this patient population is very much what we see in patients in other disease states like metastatic disease. So these drugs are not without potential side effects. We've already heard about that today. Um, but the side effects in this patient population are not different than we see in other patient populations. Um, importantly, so we talked about the patient population enrolled here. And in, in think about it for a second. These are patients who already went through three months of cisplatin-based chemotherapy and then had their bladders out. And so if you're going to give a drug in the adjuvant setting, it, it's got to be something that's tolerable um, uh, because patients have been through a lot at that point. For the patients who hadn't received new adjuvant therapy, they were cisplatin ineligible, and that's usually accompanied by some comorbidities. So to think about giving additional treatment at that point, it's got to be well tolerated. And you can see here quality of life in the intent to treat population and the subset of patients with pd one high expressing tumors. And there was no difference in quality of life in patients getting a year of NEVO versus a year of placebo. Very important data. Dr. Kamal. So, you know, for that particular patient, historically, we would do observation, right? If somebody had T3B disease after chemotherapy, um, what do you think is the current status or what should be the current status of NEVO based on Checkmate 274? Um, we have disease-free survival, but we don't have overall survival. This patient is young, healthy, very active. Uh, what would you advise this patient in your clinic? So a 46-year-old patient with T3B disease after neoadjuvant chemotherapy, I am recommending that patient gets adjuvant immune checkpoint blockade. Of course, we have a balanced discussion about the risks and benefits, 
but um, you know we don't have survival data from it yet. Uh, but if you err on the side that there might be an improvement in, in someone who's this young with high-risk disease, I think it's important to discuss. And let's assume that this patient hadn't received chemotherapy, was understage, you know, thought to be T2 and then ended up being T3B. No chemotherapy, though. Would you still discuss and, and offer Nevo? Yeah, I mean, I certainly still discuss it, particularly if a patient's cisplatin ineligible, and, and that would be consistent with the eligibility criteria for the study. I mean, I, I don't know what, what you would generally quote a patient in terms of the risk of metastatic recurrence in that setting, uh, 40%, something like that, and so it's, it's not nothing. Um, what about that patient um, watching closely, says, you know, I'll come to your office, I'll be surveilled, actually doesn't even go to your clinic, you know, seeing Dr. Kukreja and says, I'm willing to come every three months and get scans. Um, Dr. Kukreja, what would you tell that patient? Would you advise she goes to see your medical oncologist or you say, I'll follow you and if you have a recurrence, I'll treat you then? I think it, I think it depends. So if, if she did not have any neoadjuvant chemotherapy, she's going to see the medical oncologist. If she chooses not to do anything, that's their choice. Um, but usually I alternate follow-up every um, three months. Um, so I see them three months, medical oncologist sees them next three months, then I see them in, you know, three months after that. Um, but, but in general, if they haven't had any chemotherapy in, uh, in any patient um, that has T3B disease, I send them to medical oncology to talk about adjuvant chemo. Okay. That, that's interesting because, you know, in an informal sort of survey amongst medical oncologists, actually, um, in, in the U.S., it, it seems like many were not sort of willing to offer Nevo just based on DFS and then talking about the Invigor 10. Um, Matt, could you explain or, or try to explain to the audience the difference between the two trials and one, why you think one read out positive? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's all hand-waving in terms of the potential explanations. The trials were run independently, and the results are what they are. But, but I think a potential difference is that one study used observation as the control and one used placebo as the control. And there is the potential risk for informative censoring in an adjuvant study that's an open-label design uh, where patients have high-risk disease. They don't enroll on that study because they want to get observation. They enroll on that study because they want to get treatment. So they enroll, they're randomized to observation, and then they drop out and they're censored right at that point. So those events don't count. And if you look at the consort diagrams for, for the study, you see lots of patients dropped out of Invigor 10. Uh, we have a paper that was published a few days ago in Cancer simulating the percentage of patients that would have to have been censored at non-randomly censored for that study to have actually read out as, as showing a survival benefit. And it's not a ton. So I think that informative censoring is a potential explanation for the, for the discrepancy between the two studies, but it's speculation. Okay. That, that, that's interesting. The, do you recall what the number of patients for the dropout? 14%. 14%. That's, that, that's within that margin. Uh, a question's come up as to should Nevo be also offered to patients in the adjuvant setting for upper tract urothelial carcinoma? I presume your answer would be yes. Yeah, my answer is yes. Um, I mean, it, of course, that question is brought up because of the subgroup analyses. And if you look at the effect size uh, for upper tract disease, um, smallish numbers. But if you look at the effect size, it certainly seems different than patients with tumors originating in, in the bladder. That coupled with the 
biological plausibility that there might be a difference, I think has fueled this concept of whether or not it's the right treatment for upper tract disease. You know, the study was designed to ask this question in the entire patient population. The subgroup analyses are hypothesis generating. So in the absence of a better study with better treatment in that patient population, I'm generally offering it. Okay. So again, this is a, a summary slide you know, talking about what we talked about. Numerous therapeutic advances recently when it comes to patients with metastatic disease, translating these in the real world, of course, requires uh, folks such as you know my panels here to put that into perspective so we can actually talk about it with our patients. It's important to remember, though, that when we're offering these different treatment options to our patients, not every patient is going to be cured. And especially in the metastatic setting, it's the patient will often see the urologist first, develop that relationship, and will often look to the urologist in the room for your guidance into what therapy he or she should get when she goes to see our medical oncology colleagues that you know will take care of them even though they have metastatic disease. Um, and speaking of, you know, now moving into the metastatic arena, um, you know, again, a, a typical um, patient, 64-year-old male with symptomatic progression, back pain, presents um, and has uh, a CT scan after four cycles of carbo um, gem that's showing liver and bone metastases. Performance status is, is one. Um, the NGS of this primary bladder tumor tissue that was taken out was done and shows an FGFR mutation. There's no real issues that would necessarily preclude your patient from, from uh, getting um, any therapy of choice um, other than, say, grade one neuropathy. Um, what would the course of treatment for this patient be? Uh, so lots of new treatments in the metastatic urothelial cancer setting. Um, despite all of the new treatments, really the standard treatment in terms of frontline is platinum-based chemotherapy. We've tried to replace it multiple times, uh, but that's really the standard first-line treatment. We'll talk about some new therapies that have been used um, after platinum-based chemotherapy, um, but that really does remain the standard. Um, so there have been a few different approaches to try and replace platinum-based chemotherapy. Um, some uh, trials already completed, some ongoing. Um, and uh, these really involve strategies that had been used uh, in other solid tumors, in many of which showed success in other solid tumors. In the story, in urothelial cancer has been shaping up a little bit differently for reasons that aren't, in, aren't totally obvious. So the strategies have included giving chemotherapy with the immune checkpoint blockade together. We'll talk a little bit about that. Giving immune checkpoint blockade doublet therapy, so not just giving a PD-1 or pd one inhibitor, but giving that with a CTLA-4 inhibitor. Um, giving treatment uh, with um, a novel drug and getting rid of the platinum entirely, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. And then this strategy, which is not used in any other solid tumor right now, um, that really is the one that's shown benefit in, in urothelial cancer, which is this concept of switch maintenance therapy. Um, so when immune checkpoint inhibitors were initially approved for the treatment of metastatic urothelial cancer, they were first approved in patients who had received platinum-based chemotherapy and then progressed. In our standard approach to platinum-based chemotherapy, it is to give up to six cycles of treatment and then stop. And the reason that we stop is if you keep giving patients platinum-based chemotherapy, then the toxicity keeps escalating in the benefit plateaus. So six cycles is about when that happens. So that's usually historically why we've stopped at that point. But the vast majority of patients will then develop progression of disease at some point. 
sometimes only after three months by the time of that next scan. Um, and so the logical question was, immune checkpoint blockade is non-cross-resistant with chemotherapy. It has a different side effect profile. Why are we waiting for patients to develop recurrence? Why don't we just give it right after finishing platinum-based chemotherapy? And so that's the switch maintenance concept. And this has been studied in two randomized trials, a randomized phase two study, which was a little bit smaller with pembrolizumab, and then our phase three study with, uh, with evalumab. Um, and here's the results with evalumab. This phase three study had overall survival as a primary endpoint. And you can see here that both in the intent to treat population and the patients with tumor PD, with, uh, with uh, increased PD-1 expression, that there was an improvement in overall survival. In, in the, the median improvement is actually about as, as large as we've seen in metastatic urothelial cancer trials, about a year in terms of a median improvement in survival. And so this has become a standard treatment strategy in, in urothelial cancer. Um, still, though, we're trying to get rid of platinum. Uh, and, um, in, and so now that chemotherapy plus immune checkpoint blockade so far hasn't been the answer. We've thought about integrating novel treatments into this setting. Um, we know that single-agent atezolizumab and pembrolizumab still probably do have some role in terms of upfront treatment, but right now that's probably limited to patients who can't get any chemotherapy. So can we develop a combination that doesn't have chemotherapy that really could compete with, uh, with platinum-based chemotherapy. There are a few approaches, a few recent data sets. This one's hypothesis generating, but it's sort of interesting getting to, uh, to your, your prior question, Dr. Kamat. So this was the Bayou study, and it was presented at ASCO GU. And what this study did was randomize patients between a pd one inhibitor or a pd one inhibitor plus Olaparib, a PARP inhibitor. You're probably familiar with PARP inhibitors from the prostate cancer world. So this study was an all-comer study, and it didn't show a benefit in all-comers, but then they, looked, they had a uh, second, secondary endpoint of looking at outcomes in patients with DNA damage response gene mutations, and you can see there seems to be some improvement in outcomes in that subset of patients. So unclear where this is going, but, but it's interesting. Um, what's been potentially more impactful are combinations of antibody drug conjugates with immune checkpoint blockade. And we spoke about infortimab vidotin earlier in the neoadjuvant setting in that single arm phase two neoadjuvant study. Um, but this drug has been much more extensively studied in the metastatic setting. So we have two antibody drug conjugates now approved for the treatment of urothelial cancer. One of them is infortimab. And here, the target is Nectin-4, very highly expressed in urothelial cancer. It has as MMAE as the cytotoxic payload. This is a microtubule agent, sort of like a taxane, but it's very, very potent. The drug can't be given if it's not conjugated because it's so potent. You need to deliver it specifically to cancer cells with, it, with a targeted with an antibody. And then sasituzumab govotecan, this is directed against trope 2, also very highly expressed on epithelial cancers, and it has SN38 linked to it. This is like iranotecan, a drug that we use um, in other cancers like colon cancer. So these two ADCs are FDA approved for metastatic disease. And fortimab vidotin is the only one that's been studied in the phase three setting in metastatic disease. And this trial enrolled patients who had already progressed despite platinum-based chemotherapy. Most of the patients had already had immune checkpoint blockade. And you can see here a survival benefit within fortimab vidotin, uh, sort of reinforcing the accelerated approval that had occurred earlier based on a response rate endpoint. The response rate with this drug in patients who already had platinum, already had immune checkpoint blockades about 40%, 
which is pretty good compared to what we've seen with drugs historically in this space. And some of these responses are pretty durable as well. So that led to this concept, should we give infortimab vidotin with an immune checkpoint inhibitor together? And this slide has been shown multiple times at different meetings since it was first shown at ESMO. And this is the waterfall plot for the combination of infortimab vidotin and pembrolizumab in a smallish cohort of patients with metastatic urethelial cancer or cisplatin ineligible. And of course, the reason that it's been shown so much is this is probably the highest response rate that we've ever seen with a combination in metastatic urethelial cancer. Um, again, uh, single-arm study, relatively small data set. We've been fooled before with phase two studies, but pretty impressive results. And this regimen has now been moved on to multiple phase three studies, including in the neoadjuvant setting and in the frontline setting, still trying to replace platinum-based chemotherapy. This is sasituzumab govotecan, the other antibody drug conjugate. This drug has not yet been um, reported in a phase three study. A phase three study has been done, but it hasn't been reported yet. Uh, we know that this drug has activity um, similar to infortimab vidotin. Maybe the response rate's a little bit less, maybe about the 30% range compared to the 40% range. Different side effect profile. Um, and then there's a new group of antibody drug conjugates that are coming, and these are directed against HER2. Um, HER2 has not been a great target in urethelial cancer. There have been a bunch of studies with small molecules targeting HER2. Trastuzumab hasn't been a great target so far, but these new studies seem to be a little bit different. It seems to be potentially a pretty good target to deliver cytotoxic therapy. So there's a drug called Trastuzumab Druxtecan, which is FDA approved for the treatment of breast cancer. And this was studied in combination with immune checkpoint blockade in patients with urethelial cancer that had overexpression of HER2 on their tumor. Um, and you can see here, this combination results in a response rate um, that uh, um, was 36%, um, but the you can see that more patients than that had some regression of tumor. There's another antibody drug conjugate dir directed against HER2 that's actually been through a series of phase two studies in Asia. It's initially been developed in Asia, um, showing uh, pretty impressive response rates, and, and that drug is now being developed in the United States as well. That's RC48. Um, Ertafitinib is a small molecule inhibitor of mutant FGFR. We know that FGFR3 mutations, like the case that we've heard, uh, those mutations are present in about uh, 20 to 30% of patients with uh, muscle invasive urethelial cancer. And, and those mutations are activating for this receptor tyrosine kinase. So they activate the receptor, they turn on this light switch, which causes um, uh, downstream signaling within that cell and causes growth and proliferation. And so blocking that active kinase with a small molecule, like we do in other cancers like lung cancer seems like a reasonable strategy. Uh, FGFR inhibitors entered the clinic, showed activity in urothelial cancer, and ultimately ertafitinib was approved. And you can see here the swimmer's lane plots with uh, ertafitinib showing that for some patients, these responses are pretty durable. Patients could be on treatment uh, a year or two years uh, with this oral therapy. So the only oral targeted therapy that we have for the treatment of urethelial cancer. So again, the concept came up. This is a drug that has a different mechanism than immune checkpoint blockade, a different side effect profile. Should we give this with immune checkpoint blockade? 
So this is a small randomized study that was presented at ESMO comparing ertafitinib alone with ertafitinib plus citrelmab, which is uh, an immune checkpoint inhibitor. And you can see with the combination, the response rate was 68% versus 33% with ertafitinib alone. So another data set that seems to be uh, demonstrating higher activity with a combination than with the single agent um, in this regimen is moving forward for further evaluation. All of these drugs, all of these new drugs uh, are associated with a whole host of new side effects that we have to learn about, uh, a whole host of new specialists that we have to integrate into care. Um, and so this has really been, um, there's, there's a learning curve with each, with each and every one of these approvals. Just very briefly, ertafitinib, this oral FGFR inhibitor, can cause some ocular toxicity, so you have to get the ophthalmologist involved. It can cause a rash. It could cause hyperphosphatemia, which is usually pretty well managed. It can cause skin and nail side effects that can actually be, be treatment limiting. Uh, in Fortimab, the dotin, the antibody drug conjugate, can cause neuropathy. In a subset of patients, it causes hyperglycemia, uh, even in patients who don't have pre-existing diabetes, uh, and it can cause a rash, which can range from something that's just irritating uh, to something that's quite serious. And then sasituzumab, govotecan, the antibody drug conjugate that has the irinotecan-like drug attached to it, has irinotecan-like side effects, so it can cause cytopenias and it can cause diarrhea. Dr. Kamat. So, Matt, I mean, again, you did an excellent job summarizing a complicated topic for, for in a short time. Uh, but in a practical sense, if, if this patient uh, essentially, you know, is asking you, based on my tumor status, um, what should I essentially choose? Would you necessarily need to have the tumor sent out for analyses before you make treatment recommendations, or are you able to do that um, without that in place. That's number one. But the corollary really is, uh, I guess I'm asking, when should people be sending out tissue for analyses? So on paper, you wouldn't necessarily, because on paper, the next treatment for this patient is an immune checkpoint inhibitor. That said, there are some clues given in this case that make you want to really individualize that treatment decision. Clue number one is that A1C of 9.2%. So that's not a contraindication to give infortimab vidotin, which we were saying can cause hyperglycemia, but you get a little bit nervous about it. Um, you see that there's no pre-existing eye, skin, or nail toxicity. Um, and the patient has an activating mutation in FGFR3, and they have liver and bone metastases. So none of those are absolute indicators that immune checkpoint blockade isn't going to work. It can still work in some patients, but liver metastases is usually associated with a lower likelihood of response. So with, with all of those features, I would really be thinking about erdofitinib for that patient. And, and given the liver metastases, would you tend to lean towards EV if everything else was equal? I, I mean, I, you know, the data regarding ertafitinib in patients with liver metastases has not been presented in the same way as, as with, ertif, uh, with uh, infortimabidotin. In my experience, uh, ertafitinib works quite well in patients with, with various sites of metastatic disease. So, so that, that will often sway my decision between um, immune checkpoint blockade and infortimabidotin. Um, but uh, in this patient, um, I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't use that to influence my decision between ertafitinib and infortima. 
Okay. Uh, Dr. Kukeja, you heard, you know, about all these agents, EV and Sazotumab, Govitikan, and Erda in the advanced stages, right? Um, where do you see them falling in an earlier disease state? Yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, and especially with the EV neoadjuvant study that was presented at ASCO GU, um, you know, I think all of these will find a home eventually. Um, but I think something else that they talked about at ASCO GU pretty seriously is as you add these on, the toxicities add on. Um, so really weighing um, benefits to, to the toxicities. Yeah, and of course, you know, for urologists, we like intravesical delivery of these agents because you can avoid some of the toxicity. So EV is actually being studied in a phase one um, trial. Only three patients so far enrolled, but, you know, at least in preclinical studies, it appears to be uh, uh, active. A uh, couple of um, questions from the audience for you, Matt. Um, first is, based on the switch maintenance data that you presented, what are your thoughts about substituting whatever IO is available rather than Evolumab? Uh, so, you know, the level three evidence is uh, switch maintenance. The level three evidence is with the Velumab, uh, and, and that's really what's listed on guidelines. We have randomized phase two data with pembrolizumab. It's not FDA approved in that context because we have randomized data. Personally, I feel comfortable using it, but that's not, that's not the board's question. Uh, that's not the board's answer to that question. Right, right. Um, question for you, Dr. Kukreja. Um, this is actually going back to muscle invasive, non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. Uh, for a patient that has T1 high-grade bladder cancer that's BCG unresponsive um, and who just refuses a radical cystectomy, what is your preferred treatment option today? Yeah, um, my preferred treatment option is the gemcitabine and docetaxel with maintenance. Um, I think it's really well tolerated. If patients tolerate BCG, they tend to not have any problems with the gemcitabine docetaxel with like low urinary tract symptoms or anything like that. Um, it's also a, a different, a completely different mechanism of uh, how it works as opposed to BCG. Um, so I think if a patient has a really quick recurrence, maybe hitting them with a different mechanism of trying to treat the, the tumor makes sense. Um, it's also, you know, pretty easily accessible for us because we're, you know, spoiled and attached to a cancer center. Um, so it, it works out really well for, for me, and that's usually my go-to. And I would say for a lot of urologists treating bladder cancer, that is their number one. That is what they're using in BCG unresponsive and if they don't have BCG available. Yeah, I think the results with that combination have been so good, and we have been forced to not have anything to offer our patients until Pembro is approved, um, that there's a lot of traction amongst that, and urologists have gotten comfortable. And of course, Pembro was approved in on January 8, 2020, right before COVID hit. So the adoption in the community has been less with Pembrolizumab than you would expect based on approval and, and a phase two slash three study with the FDA. And GC is sort of the elephant in the room when you're looking at all these newer agents that are coming out. Uh, and I say, sorry, um, GEM, um, ADOSI, not GC. Um, uh, Matt, you've done a lot of work when it comes to FGFR mutations. I mean, uh, we know that most of the mutations occur in the low-grade tumors, right, that are non-invasive. But the toxicity profile that you mentioned doesn't really behoove us to offer ERDA to patients with low-grade non-muscle-invasive bladder cancer. Um, but at the same time, there are studies and trials being developed looking at it in that patient population. Um, what's your sense as to the role of ERDA in patients with low-grade non-muscle bladder cancer? And um, I'll segue that then to a question to Dr. Kukreja. 
Um, when do you discuss genomic testing with your patients that don't have metastatic disease? So, Matt, you first. Yeah, so I, I realized I didn't answer your question before about the timing of testing. So I generally test uh, patients when they are diagnosed with metastatic disease because I want to have that information at least in the second-line treatment decision. Um, and so that's usually when I, when I send genomic testing. Um, FGFR-directed uh, therapy for low-grade papillary tumors, I think you, you hit the, you hit the high points. You hit the crux of the issue, which is that you have a target um, that's expressed at a very high frequency in a patient population that has a disease that's not necessarily threatening their life. Um, and so do you subject someone to the side effects of a drug that has to be taken daily um, for that benefit? I haven't been involved in the studies with FGFR inhibitors and non-muscle invasive in high-grade non-muscle invasive disease, but what I can tell you from patients that I treat with metastatic disease who have tumor in the bladder, that that tumor disappears just like their metastatic disease does. And Dr. Kukreja, you know, again, you can see here the uh, flat iron analyses of close to, you know, more than 700 patients who were eligible for FGFR mutation testing showed then less than half of that had it actually performed. And then even when you had the results, less than half of those that actually had the mutation got the appropriate drug, right? So it's up to us as in medical oncologists, urologists, everyone to educate our patients about the appropriate time of testing. Um, what do you, what's your practice at your center? Um, so I would say for non-muscle invasive, we're not routinely testing patients. Um, I think, you know, we are starting to do a little bit more testing in upper tract specifically um, because, uh, you know, with the targeted agents um, and, and trials with that. I mean, usually I think the just what Dr. Galski described is most patients get cisplatin if they can get it. If they can't get it, then they get immunotherapy. And then once they kind of fail immunotherapy, um, they send it off for sequencing. I think what I have personally seen is I've had a couple of patients enter into the nivolumab um period. So they got um, neoadjuvant chemo. They still had disease that qualified them for nivolumab. And now they have disease while they're on nivolumab and they've developed disease then. And those patients are getting stuff sent off right away. Um, question for you, Matt. I mean, this is your publication is what most of us cite, but um, could you summarize for the audience what makes a patient cisplatinum ineligible? Uh, so it's arbitrary. It's sort of a line in the sand, uh, similar to your, well, maybe not so similar, but, but aligned with your work in terms of the need for harmonized decisions to inform clinical trials in the BCGN responsive setting. It, it, to me, it doesn't so much matter that that definition is 100% right in every patient, but you need consistency or you can't do clinical trials. You have to define, so, define something before you can study it. So a patient who has poor renal function with an arbitrary cut point of a uh, creatinine clearance of less than 60, cisplatin ineligible. Someone who has class 3 heart disease, cisplatin ineligible, performance status of 2, hearing loss, neuropathy. Those are the general criteria we think about. And you were actually right when with the initial statement. It is very similar to what we came up with the BCGN responsive definition. It's not an all or none, but it's a now hopefully a well enough defined group that we can do trials, make sense of it without needing a control arm because the control arm would, you know, ideally be a radical cystectomy. 
Um, we have time for a few more questions. Let's see. Um, I'll throw this up to both of you, really. Um, what's your sense about using blood-based liquid biopsy versus tissue biopsies for testing versus, I guess, urine-based um, markers? Um, Janet? Yeah, I, I would say, you know, there's a lot of companies out there looking at urine-based biomarkers. I would say no, none of, nothing has been, nothing has stuck um, yet. I think, you know, hopefully there's some stuff in the future where, um, you know, patients can avoid, uh, you know, the, the morbidity of undergoing frequent cystoscopies and stuff like that. But I don't think there's anything today that I would recommend replacing cystoscopies with yet. Um as far as, uh, and that, that's all urine-based. I, I have n not really very much experience with blood-based uh, stuff. Okay. And Dr. Galski? Yeah. I mean, for me, this has been a little bit of a chicken and egg thing because um, if we needed FGFR mutation results to inform first-line metastatic treatment decisions, then it would be really nice to be able to send off blood because uh, sometimes the blocks in another pathology lab and yeah, you're calling that lab every day trying to get someone to cut the slides it send. So uh, it can take weeks. Um, so I think if we needed that information right away, then by all means having blood would be great. But as we've discussed, we don't actually need that data sometimes until the next line of treatment or two lines of treatment after that. And so we have the time right now we, we actually had to close a study that was very similar to the NORSE study, randomizing patients between uh, immune checkpoint blockade uh, plus or minus an FGFR inhibitor, actually the opposite, FGFR inhibitor plus or minus immune checkpoint blockade, because the patients couldn't be screened quickly enough to go on study. It was a frontline metastatic study. So in a study like that, blood-based testing would have been perfect, but I think it's this chicken and the egg that we, we don't need that information right away, so yeah, we're not getting it. Great, thank you. Uh, we're right sort of on time. I want to thank everybody for your attention. I want to make another plug for the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network. There's a lot of good information out on their website, including you know a portal for patients to go in and then plug in information, look up clinical trials and see where they might be available. It's really important for us as a community to recognize that our patients, no matter whether they have metastatic disease or early stage bladder cancer, should really be thought of all the time in a multidisciplinary setting. I wouldn't necessarily want to send a patient of mine with low-grade bladder cancer first time to Dr. Galski because I'll be wasting his time, but we need to think about these things, right? And when patients have metastatic disease, they sometimes are cured by Dr. Galski's treatment, and then they start getting tumors in their bladder. And of course, then we have to see them back. So it clearly is a continuum for our patients, and it's really important that we support the multidisciplinary care for our questions. I want to thank all of you for your attention, for sending in all the questions as they were coming in. I address them as it were, try to keep it informal. And thank you for everybody at home as well. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partners, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education, and the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash VSV 860. This activity is supported through independent educational grants from AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and Merck & Company Incorporated.